It's day 51. There we deal with the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. You can find the explanation of the Catechism concerning this petition on page 563 of your Book of Praise. And what is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. Following the ministry of the word, let's sing together standing hymn 64, the stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness is a central concept in the Christian faith. We need forgiveness from God. We therefore regularly ask him to forgive our sins. That's good and necessary. After all, as long as we are in this world, we will continue to sin and to need forgiveness. Other people sin too. When they sin against us, how quick are we to forgive them? That's not always easy, especially not if what the other person did traumatized us, hurt us deeply. Then we might continue to feel resentment and even feel the urge to take revenge. After all, doesn't justice need to be done? Sin needs to be punished, doesn't it? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Have you ever felt uneasy praying these words? When and how do you forgive someone? These are questions that are worth thinking about. Our Savior impresses upon our hearts the importance of forgiveness. He obliges us to lay a link between God forgiving us and us forgiving others. And so we come to the theme for this afternoon. We acknowledge the work of Jesus Christ when we ask our Heavenly Father and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we'll focus this afternoon on two points, Christ's work for us, and secondly, Christ's work in us. We acknowledge the work of Jesus Christ when we ask our Heavenly Father, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we'll focus on Christ's work for us, and secondly, Christ's work in us. Beloved, our culture stresses self-esteem. It's popular to focus on your strengths rather than on your weaknesses. And then you can feel good about yourself. And guess what? The Bible doesn't emphasize self-esteem. As a matter of fact, it teaches us to be very aware of our sins. It also teaches us to humble ourselves before God because of them. Otherwise, we will never ask him for forgiveness. We often tend to gloss over our sins. 
After all, it isn't pleasant to think about the many ways we have fallen short of God's commandments. And nonetheless, it's important to examine our lives and consider where we have sinned. How else can we pray this fifth petition sincerely? We need to know what our debts are before we can acknowledge them to God in prayer. We've been taught to acknowledge that we are sinners. It isn't hard to do this in the form of a general statement. But how specific are we in confessing our sins? That will depend on how carefully we examine our lives in the light of God's Word. That's how we learn to see and confess our sins. And the Bible uses a whole variety of terms to describe sin. Reflecting on such terms can help us to see where we fall short of God's will in our lives. For example, when we ask him to forgive us our debts, we're acknowledging that we owe God something. What do we owe him? Well, he's our creator. He has given us life and calls us to live for him. He gives us clear instruction in his law so that we may know what his will is. If we fall short, we accumulate a debt before God. Our debts represent our sins against his law. And the problem isn't just what we have done wrong. There are also the many times we have failed to do what we should have done. Perhaps our sin was that we did nothing, whereas we should have done something positive. It's not enough, for example, to avoid being hateful towards someone in a situation. If you failed to show him or her love when you should have, you've still fallen short of God's command to love those around us. This all becomes part of a debt that accumulates before God. And what has become a debt can't be undone. However much you would like to do so, you can't turn the clock back and redo something in a different way. These sins bring guilt upon us. They make us worthy of condemnation. They must be punished. And the problem is that such punishment would involve our death. Paul emphasizes in Romans 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's a clear statement of the problem. God's just punishment of sin is death. He made that clear in paradise when he warned Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God has the authority, the right, and the obligation to administer this punishment. He wouldn't be truthful if there would be no such punishment. A failure to keep his word in this would mean that he would abandon the standard of justice and no longer be speaking the truth when warning that sin leads to death. He would be a liar if this punishment would not take place. Our Savior speaks of debts in the prayer recorded in Matthew 6. 
But in Luke 11, the word sins is used. And this shows us something of the breadth of what we should be praying about in this context. The word translated as sin is related to a verb that literally means to miss the mark. Associated with this in the moral realm is the idea of failing to achieve a certain purpose. God sets the standard for our lives. And as our creator, he has the right to determine what our goals should be. And if we don't achieve them, we have sinned. In Psalm 25 or 7, David pleads with God, Remember not the sins of my youth. He looks back on his life. <clears throat> he is now mature and better able to discern between right and wrong. It may very well be that he has already confessed these sins before. And nevertheless, he has become even more aware of his shortcomings. Have you never had that? Sometimes we do something that seemed right at the time. But later we think about it again and reevaluate what we did. And we have our regrets. What do you do with such feelings? As David reflects on his youth, he sees reason to humble himself before the Lord. He realizes how guilty he is and prays about it. In that same verse, David goes on to describe his sinful deeds as transgressions. The expression refers to sinful patterns of behavior in his life. Those were symptoms of a rebellious heart, not isolated events. He wasn't fully devoted to doing God's will. Instead, there was a deliberate effort to do the opposite. And this boiled down to a refusal to submit to God's rightful authority. And now that he is older, David looks back with dismay at what he did. And by asking God not to remember those sins, he is asking for forgiveness. In Psalm 130, verse 3, we read, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The Old Testament word for iniquity includes the notion of bending or twisting something. In this connection, we speak of crooked behavior. God's law is the straight rule, the standard to go by. And when we don't abide by that, our behavior is out of line crooked. Marking iniquities means keeping track of them. If God would do that, there would be negative consequences, retribution, and death. Transgressions is another biblical word to describe sin. The word implies that there's something to transgress, a boundary or limit. And the boundaries or limits are determined by God's law. When you sin, you are transgressing. You are crossing a line that should not be crossed. And if you look at your life, you know that you've done that. You've gone beyond the boundaries set by God. And all this and more should be kept in mind when we humble ourselves before God in prayer. How great our debt before God has become. There is so much in our past that was not the way it should be. 
Worse yet, we're still far from perfect. The catechism refers in this connection to the evil which still clings to us. Don't underestimate the strength of your sinful inclinations. We certainly all have much to bring before God in prayer. It's a weighty matter to ask God for forgiveness. Take this very seriously, for he is a holy God who hates sin. If any one of us would rely on our own works to go to heaven, we would all fail miserably. And that's why the Catechism refers to us in Lord's Day 51 as wretched sinners. Our debts before God are truly sky high. We can hardly understand the full extent of our misery. We can only acknowledge it in the light of Scripture. This is a matter of humble faith. Our hope for heavenly glory should never be based on anything in ourselves. Remember the closing words of Psalm 130. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And the word redemption implies what? Payment. Redemption implies payment. Our salvation has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to obtain eternal life for us in fellowship with God. Our God forgives us our sins when we ask for forgiveness on the basis of Christ's shed blood. He does this to open the way for us to have an everlasting relationship of love with us. And this is what the eternal life that God gives to us through Christ involves. Eternal life isn't simply life that never ends. It's a life in everlasting fellowship with God. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ is our God-given Savior. Outside of him, there's only the prospect of eternal punishment, being cut off forever from fellowship with the living God. Trust in him, the perfect Savior of sinners. His sacrifice on the cross is more than enough to atone for our sins. Our sins are forgiven when we ask for it. There are many promises about this in Scripture. Think, for example, of 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Apostle John emphasizes the role of Jesus Christ as our mediator in this. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ is the righteous one who pleads for us with the Father on the basis of his sacrifice on the cross. And trusting in him, we may approach our Heavenly Father boldly for forgiveness. Jesus Christ himself has opened the way and commands us to pray in this way. Asking for the forgiveness of our sins is therefore not presumptuous. 
It's a matter of obedience to Jesus Christ who paid the price for this. It's a sign of faith in him. We acknowledge the work of Jesus Christ when we ask our Heavenly Father and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We acknowledge Christ's work for us. We also acknowledge Christ's work in us. This is our second point. We now come to the second part of the fifth petition. Jesus did more than simply teach his disciples to ask for the forgiveness of sins. He taught them to add to the words and forgive us our debts the following phrase. As we also have forgiven our debtors. What a statement this is. What does it mean? Are we making a forgiving attitude on our part the basis for asking God to forgive us? That can't be the case. Salvation is by grace, not by works. God's forgiveness isn't based on something we do. When God forgives us, this is based exclusively on His grace through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had to shed his blood on the cross to atone for our sins. This was the only way we could receive forgiveness. Christ's blood and nothing else can save us. We rest exclusively on God's grace when we ask him for forgiveness. Then what does the second part of the fifth petition mean? Our appeal to God continues to be based on His grace. This is the case even when we forgive others. After all, where does the determination wholeheartedly to forgive someone come from? It's evidence of God's work in our hearts. How do we know this? Scripture teaches us that we are inclined by nature not only to hate God, but also to hate our neighbor. And this means that if someone has seriously offended us, our natural tendency will be to be angry with him and even to seek revenge. Haven't you ever seen that in yourself? If someone hurts you, Haven't you ever had the urge to hurt them back in one way or another? That's the effect of sin. It destroys our bond with God, but it also destroys bonds between people. And now consider what God does in his grace. Although we don't deserve it in any way, he reaches out to us through Jesus Christ. He restores our bond with him. He washes away our sins for the sake of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He won't impute any of our sins to us anymore. That means he won't hold them against us. They're innumerable, but he won't keep track of them. He will forgive them. How do you respond to God's forgiving love? Do you love him for being so generous, so full of grace toward you? Do you want to serve him out of gratitude for what he has done for you? 
This not only means focusing on him, but also on your neighbor. After all, God calls you to love him, but also to love those around you. Think of what Paul wrote in Romans 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. God's grace is at work when you understand and receive his love in Jesus Christ. And his love will then also influence your attitude toward others. He reached out to you without you deserving it. And now, through Jesus Christ, he calls you to reach out to others, showing such love to them. That can be quite a task. It's not all that easy to show love to people whom you would otherwise consider unlikable. Still, put in a wholehearted effort to show them what Christian love is. This also can involve forgiving them if they wrong you in any way. And that brings us to a key question. How do you forgive someone? Forgiving a person means showing love instead of hatred. We learn to do that by the grace of God. Here's a key thought to consider, expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 13. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't take revenge if you have been wronged. This doesn't mean that if someone has stolen something from you, for example, that you give up your right to ask for it back. It doesn't mean saying farewell to the demands of justice. God doesn't do that either in his love, does he? Sometimes someone who has abused a person, especially within the context of the Christian community, demands, you need to forgive me because the Bible says so. Realize this. Forgiveness doesn't mean that a sin should simply be forgotten. If a certain sin was a violation of the law, it may be necessary to report it to the authorities. And if an abuser says, you need to forgive it, forget it, it never happened, that's not the biblical approach. If it was a crime, report it to the police. Leave it up to them and to the judge to deal with. Justice may need to be done by God through such God-given instruments. That's not a matter of taking revenge. It's a matter of letting divine justice run its course. In some cases where someone has really hurt you, you can't bridge the gap and there's nothing you can do to set things straight. You may wonder, where is justice in my case? Sometimes you simply need to leave the hurt someone has caused in the hands of the Lord. Leave it up to him to deal with that. Although thoughts of revenge may cross your mind, you put them away, acknowledging that it would be ungodly to be vengeful. 
Remember what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, there's another way of emphasizing the words in that command. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all, peaceably with all. It's not always possible to have a normal relationship with certain people. It's not always possible to restore relationships. Sometimes the damage is irreparable, or the other person is unrepentant, or has a toxic personality. There may be situations where for your own sanity or for your own safety, you need to keep your distance. Think, for example, where sexual abuse has taken place or where there has been spousal abuse. There are situations where parents have been abusing their children, maybe for years or even decades. Further interaction with someone like that could be impossible. Sometimes all you can do is avoid situations that may escalate tensions further. So what do we conclude? On a personal level, refrain from taking revenge. Do what you can to live at peace with the other person. If it makes sense to do this, talk to that person about what he or she did. People don't always realize or come to grips with how they have hurt someone. And bringing this to their attention can help clear the air between you and them, but also between them and God in the way of repentance. Whether or not you talk about what has happened, beloved, make sure that your attitude is geared toward paving the way to reconciliation instead of to personal revenge. You can do that by maintaining a positive attitude to him or her if circumstances make this possible. Paul gives us some examples of this in Romans 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. The point is that by positive actions, you can lead people to feel ashamed of their wrongdoings. And this becomes even clearer in the next verse when Paul summarizes the basic strategy. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what true Christian love looks like. You won't be able to do good to those who have wronged you unless you have a forgiving attitude. And here's a test to help you know if you are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive someone. Have you had an opportunity to do good to a person who has mistreated you? Did you make use of it? Or are you refusing to even consider trying to do something positive to bridge the gap that has arisen? You don't have to wait until they ask for forgiveness. God didn't do that to you either. He reached out to you when you were still in the midst of your sins. Paul puts it in this way in Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And keep that in mind when you feel like turning your back on someone who sinned against you. Where would you be if God had done that to you? Do you understand the principle of overcoming evil with good? Are you putting it into practice? Are you trying to be patient and kind even to people who have hurt you? That's a forgiving attitude. It can open the way to full reconciliation if the other person finally repents and asks for forgiveness. And even if that moment never comes, you have shown a forgiving spirit. Thank God for that. It's evidence of His grace at work in you. Some situations just can't be resolved in this way. The person who hurt you may not be approachable. Perhaps that individual is already dead. The hurt caused may continue to bring tears to your eyes. Entrust that to your Heavenly Father, remembering that the day will come when He will wipe away every tear. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. By commanding us to pray in such a way, Jesus Christ is putting us to the test. He is telling us something about the fruit of true faith. This includes forgiving others. At the same time, our Savior is giving us a warning. You can't ask God for forgiveness if you refuse to forgive others. If you go through life with a vindictive heart, a spiteful spirit, you are condemning yourself if you pray this fifth petition. If that's the case, you need to repent. Consider how patient our Heavenly Father is with us. Reflect on His mercy and His love. Let His love through Jesus Christ move you to forgive those who have wronged you. When you see evidence of this in your life, rest assured that He will continue to forgive your sins. His grace is at work in you. Don't interfere with that. Pray and let Him continue to work in you. And pray that He will also work through you in the lives of others. Amen.